Well, welcome to the Situation Report for November 1st, 2023. That was Pat Benatar, Hills for Children. And that was so appropriate today. Wow, what a day. Thanks for uh, thanks to M for that one. Good recommendation. Man, good song. I hadn't heard that for ages. And I remember the 80s in high school when everybody had the Pat Benatar look, the short hair and the, the boots, the whole nine yards. God, what a great time to be alive. Interesting day today. So I, I, you know, it's funny how how uh, doing this show you draw so many so many shills and so many uh, trolls. It's 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 comical. It's some of the stuff that I get posted, and uh, I got to thank uh, Jordan Sather for giving me some sage advice when I started doing this because it's really really helped out, and. Uh, Matt Bracken gave me some too the other day, which I thought was pretty funny. So uh, anyway, I mentioned that because, you know, what you see in the comments section of uh, the live set, the, the set wraps is, is just, it's just one piece, right? The chat's one piece, but what you see in the, uh, um, in the comments section is just a microcosm of what I get via email and, and uh, PMs and telegram and, it's it's sometimes it's hysterical some people have some pretty funny comments other people are just they, you know, they're just brutally you know they, they they have to find something wrong and it just cracks me up and uh you know people don't believe that well let's just put it this way there's a lot of people that don't believe what's going on around them and you know there's there's a number of there's a number of things going on right now and Yesterday, somebody sent me the Elon Musk, Joe Rogan interview. So I listened to all of it. And then today I listened to uh, an interview on a Canadian prepper on YouTube. The guy's name is Joel Skolson. And I've heard him before. And it's he's basically going along quoting a lot of what's and pawns in the game, meaning we put Mao in power. We put the communists in power. We put Putin in power. And... The globalists have to attack, you know, Putin in order to look like um, they're against him. And, you know, the one thing he called out is that Putin is about Putin. And if if you understand anything about Putin, it's that all these things that people are saying that he is, he is not. He he came out of the Cold War. He he is he believes in Mother Russia. He's not a Christian. He's not an Orthodox Christian. He's not even, he doesn't even really have a belief system other than the old communist belief system. And there's only so much of that he believes. And his entire world has been built around, first, the first thing he did was he killed off all the senior people that were in the in, in Russia when he took over. All the oligarchs, all the old commanders, all the old, the old guard. And you know, people are so easily forget things because they don't do any cursory research. And I had a, a good friend of mine. He was former DIA and he did the deep dive while he was at DIA on Putin. And he gave me a, um, a, a synopsis of the guy that was like 75 pages long and it was spot on. And you know, somebody asked me the other day, where did you get all your information on Putin? Well, I was handed, you know, they, DIA 
Marine Corps intelligence activity, and even the CIA used to do these country books. They were little pocket guides that you could stick in your BDUs and carry with you everywhere you went. And they were actually pretty fucking accurate. But now, you know, that everybody's compromised by globalists and communists, the whole system has been thrown out of whack. So none of that information exists. And MCIA, they used to produce some amazing stuff. When, when we, you know, early 90s, through, I'm going to say, 1998, 2000, Marine Corps intelligence activity put together some pretty stunning products. Because that's what, that's what intelligence is all about. You're building product for the battlefield commanders. That was their job. They did it great. And I, I don't have anything bad to say about it. And I spent a year with the Marines at Quantico, and, and I learned a lot about the Corps. I learned a lot about Marines. I learned a lot about amphibious warfare. I learned everything about command control warfare and it was a great experience. And I, I, you know, I got a new appreciation for the core because most of the guys I worked with were all, you know, captains and majors and they were all incredibly intelligent guys. Uh, A lot of Academy grads, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of guys went to OCS and it was a mix. So it was a, it was a good experience. So that's where a lot of my information from Putin came from. I, I kept all those books that we got way back when because they were accurate. And, you know, we're watching the disintegration of the old guard that was created by Henry Kissinger and a few other globalists that are, it's all coming home to roost. And Skozin's his whole premise is that by 2027, we'll be at a world war. And, Part of his premise is that the Russians will are going to be able to do maneuver. And we've seen in Ukraine, they can't do maneuver. Um, and I'll let Troop talk about this because he just posted something. But the, the bigger picture here is that we're seeing a number of different things converging all at once. And the best laid plans are falling apart, which is why the globalists have four or five different lines of operation they can choose from to do things. Um, and then... The Musk interview was very, very interesting. Everybody that's listening to me knows my view on Musk. I think the guy's a fucking psychopath. But he said some very interesting things in this interview with Joe Rogan. One of them was that he called Twitter, specifically the liberal agenda, a mind virus. And then he called AI, AI safety has to be at the forefront of what we do moving forward, because whoever programs the AI determines how the AI will act. And the environmental movement has moved so far to to the left that they're now a a human extinction movement. And it's part of the mind virus, as well as AI safety is not being considered. And I talked about this briefly when I talked about AI and how, how dangerous it is right now that we're programming AI without any guardrails. And when you when you program something, you have to be very specific about how you do things. So we're teaching AI without any guardrails, and that's massively fucking dangerous. Because imagine, like I said, the coolest technology in the world in the hands of your arch enemies. That can get out of hand very, very quickly. And it's it's already proving to do that. And that's, you know, the 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 piece that most people don't pay attention to is that the tech community by and large, especially in Silicon Valley, is, and, and you know, it's, 
And Musk talks about Berkeley as a epicenter of liberalism that had access to technology. And okay, great. Um, he's right. But one of his premises that he don't agree with is that typically those areas of influence only have geographical influence, but because they had access to Twitter and technology and the ability to influence the message, they were able to <clears throat> create a mind virus and then control the narrative. So people actually bought into it. I would, I would go a step further with that and say that I think the mind virus was created by the CIA through the creation of Twitter, Facebook, um, YouTube, et cetera. And because of the mass censorship on all the social media platforms, they were able to plant firmly plant this mind virus. I mean, look at how successful they were at convincing everybody on the left that orange man's bad. Most people don't even know why they don't like Donald Trump. They just hate the guy because the orange man's bad. And that is a, that is a perfect example of a highly effective information operations and, you know, influencing campaign that was highly successful. Now you have people like never Trumpers because of that. And then you have people that are so far to the left that anything to the right is right leaning. And Musk talks about that too. And, you know, I hate to say it, but there were points in everything he had to say on the show. And there was stuff that I, I couldn't not agree with. And the one salient point that I believe is spot on was he was talking about San Francisco and where Twitter is located in San Francisco, it's a war zone. And he called it the end of humanity. It looks like the end of humanity, deconstructionist. And if you've listened to me for over a year, you've heard me use the term, these people are not globalists, they're deconstructionists. They want to deconstruct the nation state to, in order to be able to build a nation that is wrapped around a, a tyrannical military style government. That's what they want. And if you look at how Putin, Xi, Kim Il-jong, Maduro, and all these other dictators have built their, their systems on control, they have middle managers. So if you look at the globalist picture, the globalists are using these dictators as middle managers. This is what they want to install across the planet. And it's very significant because now you have a global influencer saying the same thing. And the first step in toppling this world order and this, this shadow government, as well as the deep state, if you want to call it that, this global conspiracy, is to out them so everybody understands what their agenda is. And part of that's education, part of that's influencing operations, and part of that is just downright getting in people's face and showing them the truth on the ground of what's real versus what they've made up in their head. Because most Americans, they, how many people have spent time in San Francisco? I would say probably 1% of the population. But I guarantee you, if you show the population what's really going on there and how bad those streets are and how many businesses have closed in downtown San Francisco, I guarantee you that's going to have an impact to the greater population. And almost everybody that uh, goes to San Francisco comes back deeply changed. I used to work in San Francisco. We had an office there, and I was down there all the time. 
and I'm literally two blocks away from the waterfront. You can't even go on Howard Street anymore. It's a fucking drug zone. And it's it's disgusting. Human feces everywhere. There's urine everywhere. It smells like a locker room urinal. That's the effect of the mind virus and the liberal ideology that's taken people so far to the left that they can't they can't see anything else. It's they've created this myopic view of the world that's now an extinctionist view of the world. And I I have to agree with Musk on that. And it, it's it's very very interesting. Um, anyway, I wanted to get back to the situation in Ukraine because Troop posted something today, and I know Colonel Conrad. By the way, thanks, gents, for uh, for jumping on. I appreciate it. I know I'm a little late getting started, but I wanted to play uh, Pat Benatar, and I wanted to open up with a few a few comments about the Musk interview. Troop, you, you want to talk through the the Russian situation that you posted this morning? Sure. Yeah, I moved my microphone around. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you loud and clear. Okay, so I follow the Russian channels and the Ukrainian channels too. There's been a developing pattern of what you two refer as good order and discipline. I refer to as morale and organization on the ground. And the Russians and the Ukrainians are both suffering the same problem. And I think right now, whoever whoever has the most endurance is going to win the war. The Russians on the ground are going... We're not, you know, we're supposed to fire a thousand mortars a week and we're only getting, you know, 10 of them. We're not getting the food or the water, the ammunition, the medical supplies. Their field trains are pretty spread out. And what did we calculate that to? It's like a thousand mile front. So that's a, that's a lot of room to cover. And the Ukrainians have a lot of Western resources backing them up. The Ukrainians are kind of, they remind me of the Republican Guard in the Gulf War. We have this big, badass group of people with all the best shit and just got the piss bombed out of them for six months so by the time we showed up they were like you know what hey fuck this put me on the back of the deuce and a half and the ukrainians are really i think feeling that because they don't they don't have good leadership either they're just throwing a bunch of people out of city or out of front or out of sector and they're they're dropping off a bunch of stuff to get started but they're not really coordinating them they're not moving them around and both the russians and the ukrainians have been reporting that they're getting to somewhere right after the enemy left. And most of the incursions that they're getting now are either the drone surveillance where you're seeing the drones go and drop a grenade on a guy sleeping in a ditch or just through happenstance, the scouts will run into each other and then they'll try to direct artillery. But the biggest problem is discipline and leadership. And that's always been the case in warfare. When the Wagner group was operating actively and Prajuzin was still alive, they were very strongly aligned to Mother Russia, patriotism. They were professional mercenaries. They had a lot of them had battle experience. And a lot of those most experienced commanders were in the Wagner group. And you can correlate that directly to uh, Z or what people call Blackwater still. You have special operators and people that were in the military. And they're, you know what, fuck this. I'm only making 3600 bucks a month as an E6. I can get out, I can make 280 grand a year and I don't even have to pay taxes on it and I can get whatever I want. So the Wagner group really was kind of the best and the brightest of the, not just a regular Russian military, but other mercenaries as well. And they were well-coordinated. They had a lot of experience and a lot of different types of warfare and they had good leadership. And they're also funded by Russia. So when they had their little 
uh, uprising, which I don't, I think three of the three of us have different opinions on what exactly happened when, when the Wagner group was going to go back into um, Moscow, but essentially the, the units in the Wagner group haven't been disassembled and they haven't been redistributed yet. The demand from the Russian rank and file is, Hey, we want some of these Wagner groups to come to our units. We basically want to enlist them back in the Russian army or maybe make them advisors, but just put them in charge of us because our commanders suck. And there's still a lot of criminality, not as bad as Ukraine, but there's a lot of criminality as far as taking stuff off the battlefield, reselling it, it's going on the black market, who knows what's going on. There's a lot of collusion in between the state Duma representatives, what we would call senators and congressmen, and a lot of the, um, the commanders in the Russian army. And the people that are suffering are the Russian soldiers. They're starting to feel the drain, they're starting to get, um, they're not being relieved as op- as often as their doctrine would mandate. And if you remember not too long ago, we had the, the stopgap issue. I think that was still in the Iraq war. It may have been in Afghanistan where they were keeping guys way longer than they should have in field. Well, this is happening with the Russians as well. So they're getting ground down. They're getting pissed off. A lot of them now at this point are conscripts. And they're fighting another force that was just a bunch of westernized people that just like a lot of people in the Iraq war were crammed into the back of a bus. They were rushed through training. They dropped them off in the middle of nowhere and they went, well, here's your rifle. You have two choices. You can stay here. We'll give you food, Um, you know, fight if you make contact. If not, you're going to starve to death and fucking die. We don't care. So they're not very motivated and they're not very aligned to any other type of thing that's going to push them as like patriots, right, to fight. So they're both disorganized. They're both running out of uh, money and they both are running out of supplies and they're both suffering from the same leadership issue. So I think Russia is going to pull it out because they are right now trying to figure out how to integrate these Wagner units in with their regular army in a way where they aren't going to have a disruptive event. And for you two to consider that, imagine if you were in charge of a, you know, a division and you put people like me in charge of it or people like us in charge of it that are civilians that are already pissed off at whatever situation and now you give us command over a, you know a bunch of military units you really got to think that through and so that's where russia is kind of struggling with the wagner group right now and then on the ukraine side the free shit ferry is about dried up they're dropping their stuff off in israel now so russians are kind of kind of trying to figure out where to attack next and what's going to make the most sense the ukrainians refuse to give up because of the keebler elf um i honestly don't know i I don't want to predict right now what i think will happen but i'll say what i think will happen is um russia is definitely probably going to control everything east of the the dnieper river but i don't think they're going to be able to control everything as far as uh uh, essex or as far as southeast uh, ukraine so anyway there's there's the update on that a lot of not a whole lot of good order and discipline on either side Dave, get thoughts on that? Because I know that uh, Colonel Piper said this exact problem existed, and I didn't believe him at the time, that the Russians couldn't do maneuver. And it, it, true, what you're talking about is good order discipline, but it's also esprit de corps. Right? When you don't have good leadership, you don't have any esprit de corps. And, yeah, they're, they're feeling pretty demoralized on both yeah. sides. Yeah. Yeah, actually, Ralph, Ralph and I uh, both said that the Russians could not do maneuver. Ralph emphasized uh, some of the structural problems within their education system. And I, I was talking about some of the structural problems within their doctrine and uh, you know, their, their, their tactics 
have changed because of their demographics in the country getting much, much smaller than what it used to be when the Soviet Union existed. I, I agree with the things that Troop said. It's almost like, I don't want to say the blind leading the blind, but two genuinely incompetent entities trying to bang against each other. And, uh, the, the, you know, th they are their own worst enemies, so to speak. I think those but, are called hookers, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, I'm not going to go there, but <laughs> I, I, will, I will simply say I have not seen to date any evidence uh, before the demise of Wagner or not. Uh, that the Russians were uh, all that capable of large-scale maneuver warfare in in the way that they were 30 years ago. Uh, the Wagner Group had guys who were trained, who were motivated, who were they had they had a degree of competency. And um, but I, I'm not aware of that happening on large scale at at uh, you know above battalion level. So I, I'm really, I'm really looking for the day when somebody on, on the green, on the green side, you know, somebody, somebody in green suits, I'm trying to say, uh, who has some clearance comes out with some unclassed material, looking at all of these operations from a maneuver standpoint with some good, uh, you know, critical analytic skills. I think it's going to be pretty disappointing. Well, I, so Saint, let me answer your question, then Casey, I'm going to respond to you real quickly. So, I, uh, yes, you have to do maneuver warfare because where they're sitting right now in the Donbass and where Kiev's at, if they if they ever intend to hold that ground, then they're going to they're going to have to cross the country, and that takes coordination, takes logistics, it takes maneuver, and most importantly, it takes integrated air and ground operations to clear any obstacles on the way. And if they can't do just simple maneuver into a, even around an urban area because their supply is so terrible, because their logistics are strung, you know, so far their, their supply lines are strung out. This is exactly what happened to the Germans in uh, Operation Barbarossa. This is exactly what happened. They stretched their supply lines to the point where they were combat ineffective. And the downstream effect of this is not just going to affect them here. Like, uh, if you go along with what Joel was saying in, in the interview, and it's about an hour, hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes long, he, talk, he talks about how China is not yet ready to get into a world war because they're still building their military. And they won't be ready until 2027. So even if they go before that, and this lines up with what you were saying, Dave, they're not ready to go until 2027. By that time, if if the Russians haven't learned maneuver, there's no way that those two those two entities are going to get together and move anywhere in in mass. And even if even if the Chinese build these ma <coughs> this massive army, if they have the same problem the Russians do and they're susceptible to the exact same interdiction that the Russians are right now. And the, the, Rus the Russians are make, or excuse me, the, the Chinese have um, an equivalent training ground to what, we, you know, to what we call the NTC, the National Training Center, Fort Irwin. And uh, so they've developed that essentially modeled after what, what we have done for the last three or four decades and how we learn maneuver warfare 
in, in a desert-like environment. And they have a colonel there who's supposed to be very, very skilled, very knowledgeable. And he's, you know, reportedly turned down a promotion to general like five different times so that he could stay there and be the schoolmaster and make sure these lessons get passed on. So at least from from what I'm hearing in that direction, the Chinese are making, uh, you know, an authentic effort to do this from the ground up and have the kind of, uh, you know, battle lab uh, test center that, that we developed and uh, use the technology and get people out on the field and do it for real. And, and that's really what you have to do. You have to take people through their paces um, and like, like building blocks, just keep building the units and building the units um, until you can mature from, from company size to battalion size to, to brigade size. It's, it's pretty difficult to exercise division, but um, you know, that's, it's like going up a ladder. You got to take it one step at a time. And, and, but most of all, you've got to build the institutional knowledge. And what I don't know about China, this is the big question mark. Do they have a professional non-commissioned officer corps the way that we do? If they do, they'll be able to pull us off. If they're like Russia and they don't, then it's going to be an uphill battle. Well, they use a lot of Russia doctrine, right? They, they, yep. Their whole their whole game is to use tack nukes and then move in and, and mop up the the rest of it. And you know, to answer your question, Chris, the point is that if they can't do maneuver, they're not going to hold anything past where they are now because they're going to be stuck in this quagmire of these defensive positions. And we, what you want, the whole point of maneuver, is the whole blitzkrieg idea where you you have these lightning movements and you you surround the enemy. And you cut them off and kill them. And we haven't seen either side be able to do that, despite the the, the parity in weapons, the parity in systems. I mean, the, the only thing the Ukrainians, if they would have had integrated air and integrated air defense, they might have had a better shot of, of breaking through. But they're using these World War II style defensive doctrine that they used outside of Kursk, where they have these multi-layer defensive belts. They draw in the Ukrainians into these defensive belts and then him with artillery. That's not maneuver warfare. That's that's basically World War One trench warfare. Yeah, that's the and, other advantage. Uh, the other disadvantage that the Ukrainians have is they're they're on the defensive. The Russians are invading their territory, and the Russians they have the if if you have ten guys in a village that are standing up to Russia, Russia will send ten divisions of tanks to that one village. That's how they've always done it, right? First wave, second wave, third wave, and there's no maneuver warfare there, but really the other problem is if you look at early in the war that's exactly what they were doing they were sending these entire divisions to these little towns these little places and they were stacking them up and now through attrition they don't have they don't have a whole lot of stuff that they can hobble together to just go and take over a town and then once they get there it's toxic if you're on the offensive to just stack up in a town because now you're an artillery target right so the it's really interesting how this war is going because the Ukrainians aren't really trying to fight past the, uh, the Dnieper river and the Russians aren't trying to go past that river either, but they just keep blowing the shit out of each other and neither one of them really moving. So this is kind of the stagnation of this is, is also having a huge effect on morale on both sides. Sorry, I was having a lovely conversation with myself on mute. <laughs>
Uh, I agree. I, I I'm I'm looking at the current situation on the ground, and I'm also looking at what the downstream effects are going to be when the the war gets is spread wider. Because we're setting conditions right now with the the Israeli conflict to go after Iran. I mean, that's why we that's why we've kept forces in Iraq. That's why we've kept forces in Syria. No fucking reason for them to be there other than it gives us gives them a target to shoot at and us a justification to widen the war. I mean, we all agree on that because that's the let's face it. We created the Mahajadeen. We created ISIS. We created Hamas. We created Hezbollah through various CIA and Mossad. Hell, we moved ISIS and Hezbollah several times over the last 20 years so that they could continue the fight in other places. So everything we're seeing right now is just a, it's just a prelude to a wider conflict in the Middle East and then ultimately a world war. But <clears throat> I'm looking at the situation on the ground in Ukraine and I'm thinking if the Russians can't get their shit together now, on their own home turf, there's no way they're going to pull off a wider war somewhere else. There's no way. And it makes sense that they want to grind down and, and use attrition warfare against NATO and and uh, and the U.S. But at some point, that, that strategy is going to backfire on them. Well, that, that's, that's certainly true. But we have to think about the type of warfare they want to lure us into. Um, the last thing anybody wants to do is to get us into open, uh, you know, open wide-scale maneuver warfare. They want to get us into some of these super cities on the scale of Baghdad and tie us down. Because you've talked about several times, you know, how intensive uh, how intensive that is in terms of resources. And of course, part of the ancillary effect of anything we get involved with over there is drawing us away from the continental United States, which goes back to the other topic we've harped on so many times. And, and I'm actually seeing all kinds of uh, elevated discussion from other sources in, in uh, alternative media. And that, of course, is, is the invasion going on in our country and the pending, uh, you know, the pending operations of Chinese, Russian, Uzbekistan, uh, cartel members and and of course uh, the Muslim various Muslim nations that we expect to rise up some at some point whether it's earlier like you think Steve or whether it's later like I think more you know after July into August time frame. Well, I don't think there's going to be a world war this year. I think there's going to be turmoil and chaos in the U.S. that precludes us from having the 24 election. I don't I don't yeah. see yeah. us having any kind of a a major conflict outside of the Middle East um, until at least 26. Because listen to the rhetoric coming out of D.C. All they're talking about right now is reconstituting all the shit that we've said to Ukraine that's been blown up. And, you know, they're, they're aside from the fact that everybody in D.C. is brain dead and stupid, the, the other piece of it is, is that I, I fully will expect that those forces that have been moved into our country are going to be leveraged this year for destabilization, not for, you know, the Red Dawn moment that everybody thinks is going to happen. I don't see that happening. I see, a, I see destabilization and interdiction efforts on their part to keep us um, focused here so they could do things like 
Taiwan, but I don't see the Chinese going into Taiwan until at least 24, late 24, 25. If they're really, re, you know, constituting forces right now, it's going to take them another year to get there. And they're, they're not an amphibious warfare country anyway. So I can see them, you know, analysis paralysis. So I, I guess I'm just clarifying, right? Because we've had this conversation several times. And I, I think there's, um, there's a good propensity for the, the major urban areas to be a mess. And, you know, the, the other part too is that we can't discount our own government conducting a false flag somewhere in the near future too. That's but I'm looking at this and I'm thinking they're going to activate all of these pro-Palestinian, pro-Israel groups to start fighting it out in the cities because BLM has fallen apart. And so is a lot of the uh, the Patriot side of the house. So they need a different set of boogeyman to to duke it out in the streets to cause chaos. Call me crazy. No, I agree with that. But I, I also think that you know at the at the heart of their strategy is the recognition that the United States no longer has the capability of conducting two or three major theater warfare operations. And so they'll work to overstretch us and uh, that we overextend ourselves, whether it's, you know, saber rattling towards Taiwan and, and getting us to move forces into, into the Pacific theater or whether it's the Middle East. Uh, anything to draw us out of the United States, I think, is on their agenda because I, I do. You and I both agree something next year is going to happen that is going to preclude uh, the elections and bring about the, uh, you know, what they will claim the necessity for the War Powers Act. So, I don't disagree with that. But remember, DOD just came out this week and said we have directed energy weapons, so we're saved. Good guys are winning. Trump's coming back. <laughs> yeah, I think they're talking about the uh, the airborne laser system. That we've, we've everybody knows about it. We've dumped a bunch of money on it. It's no secret, and they've been trying to put those aboard ship. I remember so, aliens are controlling the financial system and the secret space force is up there protecting all of us and the space force is going to, they're going to save the day. Come on, man. Stick well, with no, the mean, let me, let's <coughs> talk, to the, talk to the lasers for a minute. So uh, directed energy weapon and laser beam, it requires a lot of power. So this idea that they use the laser beam to burn up Lahaina, I, I don't buy into that because it would have to be a pretty massive, space station size thing that was floating you know only 100 miles above the earth it's just not currently you know possible. how much energy it takes to run a satellite and how much how how <laughs> lightweight they make satellites and you know as well as i do that the the power source they would need to be able to pull it off is significant so i it, i don't disagree massive yeah but uh, as far as the the directed energy lasers go we've mounted them on 747s we've mounted them on ships so you have a lot of power that's available on the aircraft and the fuselage or on the ship and the laser beam is real hot and it's real fast because it's going the speed of light so you can burn stuff up and we are we are fielding them we are testing and we are using them but we, we don't have an entire pez dispenser full of those things sitting on a bunch of frigates so that there was a little bit of a bluff from that from that briefing oh we have directed energy weapons we, we have directed energy weapons in development, and a few of them are fielded, but we don't have them in our inventory yet. Well, certainly not the 
has been publicly acknowledged, and I have no one way, I have no idea one way or another the extent to which they've developed those things. I would think after all these years that that they have some type of significant capability. They're they're mainly used to shoot missiles out of the air. Right. Uh, the only the only thing yeah. I give a shit about is I want a cool sweatshirt and I want to be <laughs> on the moon base. And I and I hope that when I go up there, I get a coffee mug, man, because I want a cool coffee mug that says I've been on the moon. Just saying. Uh, there's, I, look, I, I'm being facetious because there's, God, the, the amount of disinformation that is being pushed out by our own community right now is, it's fucking amazing. Like today, somebody sent me this article that said, don't eat fish from Japan because it's all radiated from Fukushima. And I'm like, that is not fucking possible. What, am I supposed to go to the grocery store with a fucking Geiger counter now? So what the fuck is wrong with you people? If you knew half the shit that was in a Twinkie, you wouldn't worry about the fish having radiation. My God, the stuff that people eat out of the, out of the fucking grocery store that's terrible and they're worried about radiation and fish. I mean, this is the kind of shit we have to unwind every single day. So, uh, look, I think we have some capability in space. I don't know what that capability is. I I fail to see that it's the laser. But I also know that there's there's a significant amount of, of assets being put up by a number of countries right now. And space is being weaponized. To what extent? Who knows? But the thing that I think is is salient here is... We're heading into uncharted waters, and we know that we don't have the replenishment or the capacity to replenish the weapon systems we've already lost. And that's going to be significant just in the next, I'm going to say, six months as things develop in the Middle East. Because Iran is a weapons, they're a weapon manufacturer. Russia is a weapons manufacturer. China is a weapons manufacturer. Russia and and Iran don't have to import anything to manufacture weapons. And most of the drones that we're seeing on the battlefield, which has shaped the battlefield significantly and is shaping the battlefield in Gaza right now. I've seen I've had people send me multiple videos of um, Israeli soldiers getting bombed by hand grenades from multiple drones they don't even know are over their head so that is a significant change in the battlefield and they're fighting in urban areas so this is i think we're going to see the reshaping of the battlefield and i think we're seeing the reshaping of the entire um middle east happening right before our eyes now somebody sent me a video today about the whole end state that they're trying to reach with gaza and the reason they're in there is because they want to build a new canal through um uh, the Persian Gulf into through Gaza into the Mediterranean, uh, and Troop, <coughs> you and I traded traded messages about that today. I, you know, I have a hard time believing that it's not true, but I have a hard time believing it is true. And the reason why I say that is, there's nothing that the elite wouldn't do right now to generate more revenue. And that said, the the part that's far fetched about them building another canal is the fact that you've heard this term well they're going to nuke the they're going to nuke the uh um Suez canal all that's nonsense but do i think that this is all ties back to resources and that this fight ultimately has multiple objectives absolutely do i know what those objectives are no 
but I do think that there's a bigger picture here that we're probably not addressing. And, you know, I know that the wider war is what they wanted because I've been talking about it since day one. This gives Israel a number of different justifications to do exactly what they wanted to do before. And that is have a reason to bomb the shit out of Iran so they can take their nukes out because they're deathly afraid of raining nuclear weapons. I think they're they're really going to be in trouble, uh, Israel, because the Arab world, even though nobody wants the gypsy Palestinians, they're they're going to stand with the Palestinians, and everybody else is looking for a reason to to kick Israel's ass as well. And for so, I put out a thing today that said you don't have to pick a side on this because the, it's a war of criminality on both sides. And I will not justify the killing of civilians because Hamas has decided to, to surround themselves with human shields. The reality of collateral damage and warfare, the, the accidental killing of civilians, is something that every commander has to worry about. But you have collateral damage based on a degree of restraint and discipline. And Israel is going into it going, ah, oh, fuck it. You know what? We're just, we don't care. There's one, there's one Hamas guy there and there's 400 school children. Fuck it. Take him out. So there's no restraint to that collateral damage, which makes the Israelis no better than the, than Hamas, honestly, because they, they don't give a shit about civilian casualties and the, the civilian casualty toll uh, that was inflicted upon the Israelis by Hamas was the, was the reason they used to go into Gaza to begin with, right? We have to take these guys out. These are bad guys. But when you when you completely dismiss uh, restraint, you lose you you lose your right to victimhood. Literally lose your right to victimhood when you're when you're in a mode of gener, genocidal murder of civilians. You're no longer you don't get to carry around the World War II um, victimhood card anymore. You lose that. Well, it's a game. It's a game of emotional attrition because they they're they're moving from one emotional event to another to keep the population distracted, right? And you, you, you know, our typical our typical mode of operation when it comes to psychological operations is we have a catalyst event, we emphasize the catalyst event, we take an action, then there's another catalyst event, then there's another action, and that's that's what we're seeing the Israelis do. Hamas on the other side of the fence, it's all emotional all the time. And they purposely put themselves in mosques and schools and hospitals and create, you know, community centers and hospitals. So it will get hit so they can they can claim the martyr card. Right. Everybody knows that tactic now. So that's that's not going to buy them any mileage. But where the Israelis have gone wrong. Is they have doubled down on the fact that they're going to destroy every last um, Hamas fighter. And at the end of the day, that means they're going to kill every last Palestinian. And that's the message that's conveyed to most of the population in the Arab world. And they're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. So now we're marching up on a timeline. November 3rd, 3 p.m. Middle East, which is, I think, 3 a.m. our time. If they don't stop the killing and they don't stop the offensive in Gaza, then Hezbollah and Syria and Iran, and I think a few others are all going to start attacking in the north and on, on the West Bank. So, wider war no matter what. And th that, to me, is a massive loss of the information war. Because Israel, you know, they've, they've made a lot of strategic 
blunders since the start of this. But the biggest one is doubling down on this genocide. Because all every day that goes by and all these pictures of um, Palestinian citizens getting killed, uh, it just galvanizes the entire uh, Arab world. And the, the weather's perfect for war right now in Israel. They have beautiful winters there. So what's you know what's the average temperature like? Fifty nine degrees. Syria has a bunch a, an entire military of war hardened soldiers, and there's not a whole lot of activity. I wrote a, a we're uh, the ones that brought them in. Yeah, we're the well, guys that brought them into Syria. So we're, we we <laughs> trained them all. So. Why not throw them in Israel and turn it into a quagmire? Because yeah, they, you know. yeah, well, and they they've leaned on all the the U the U.S. military bases that were the, the forward operating bases that were out there. They're gone. They're kicking the Americans out. They're not messing with the Kurds right now. I wrote a threat assessment on this a couple months, a few months ago, if, if you remember. Syria and Iran have nothing better to do now but to fuck with Israel, and it's perfect, perfect time to do it. So I'm I'm going to expect. Israel's going to have to start learning how to negotiate and, and temper a little bit, or they're just going to start attacking their cities. And I don't remember what the number was, but I, I think that Hezbollah had 200,000 rockets. And you don't even have to aim those things. You just launch them. They're just going to blow up shit. So they're, they're not going to be able to, Israel's not going to be able to sustain. This isn't, this isn't like a bunch of barbarians attacking them in 68 that weren't organized. This is going to be a massive, uh, first, second wave type of assault, and it's, it's going to be it's going to be devastating to Israeli society, the, the, you yeah. know, your your civilian uh, population. I agree. I'll take uh, redneck ass whooping for a thousand, Alex. The wild card that people seem to forget about is that the 800 pound gorilla in the region is really the Turks to the north. They're a little bit distant, but they've got a very potent military. They've got an air force that they're not afraid to use. It's it's well trained. I mean, they're a NATO member, um, but Israel is not, and so they're they're not so limited. But they are while they're not a uh, strictly a theocratic government, they are a Muslim nation, and uh, their leadership supports that. I yeah, don't the Turks will turn on us in a heartbeat. I think. Uh, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 that in and of itself, I heard somebody. Ah, it was a field grade officer being interviewed this past week, made the comment, well, the Turks really shouldn't be in NATO. And I thought, oh, my God, what an ignorant opinion. Regardless, oh, That's of how a guy we that feel, should have been knelt down and shot in the head right there. I like, mean, regardless of how we feel about the Turks, uh, the fact of the matter is they sit on some of the most geostrategic land on the planet. And they are, in essence, the southern shoulder of NATO. They're That's critical. Uh, Israeli bullshit, too. I try to explain that to people. We need to keep, we need to make sure Israel's defended, but that doesn't mean we need to be their friends. We certainly are not going to, don't need to condone their, their genocidal rage in Gaza. Yeah, no, I think I, there's, there's a, there's a, of course, there's a bigger globalist agenda here at work because Netanyahu is a globalist and, you know, Biden and his whole crew are globalists. So this isn't just Israel. We, we precipitated no, this event and we allowed this shit to grow. We allowed this. If, if these guys in D.C. were smart, they would have said to Netanyahu, you can, you can close the borders, you can shut the water off, you shut the power off, but you're done dropping bombs because you're uniting the Arab world against us. But they didn't do that. They're moving more troops into the region so they can drop more troops into Syria and more troops into Iran, into Iraq 
And what do you think is going to happen to those troops? They're going to get mortared and bombed to beat shit. And we're going to start to see mounting casualties, and then they're going to want to go after Iran. The whole agenda has been the start of this, start a wider war. So the 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 I, as far as I'm concerned, and this will be probably unpopular, but Israel can deal with the consequences they've created for themselves. Because for how many fucking years have we sent billions of dollars to Israel? Billions. Where'd the fucking money go? The number is 270 billion plus, Alex. Still, where's the fucking money going? We've sent you all this money. Where did it all go? It didn't go into weapons. Did it go into, you know, surveillance state? I mean, and now all of a sudden we're supposed to use more U.S. taxpayer dollars because there's a, a preponderance of people in the legislature in D.C. that are all dual citizens, U.S. and Israeli, and we're supposed to use more taxpayer dollars to go over there and defend them in a situation that they created. Yeah, I don't see that leaning well with the American public either. And no matter how they try and sell this, the Arab public's not going to sign up for it. The U.S. public's not going to sign for it. And now you're seeing Palestinian rallies in France and in Europe. And it's only a matter of time before that goes off the rails or somebody goes off the reservation. That's that's really the piece I'm waiting for. I'm waiting for somebody to go off the reservation that they're not paying attention to and disrupting all of their plans. Because from an information warfare standpoint, this has been a cluster fuck since day one. I'm waiting for the skinny jean fatigues with the popped collar and the summer and winter collection. So when we dress up all of our millennials and send them out there as conscripts, so they'll look good when they die. <laughs> I want to give a shout out to Spud Hut, who asked a very relevant question um, about natural resources off of Gaza and, and some of the the lines of communication and, and trade routes. We talked about that two weeks ago, and I, I had pointed out, in my opinion, that's really the backstory to all of this. This is this is on the greater scale um, a geostrategic, geopolitical battle between the the BRICS organizations, Russia, China, India, etc., and the you know the London-driven Western oligarchs who have traditionally controlled most of the oil and natural gas coming out of the Middle East. And now they're, they're being encroached upon. And that relates back to what Steve was talking about, building a canal from Gaza on down uh, in parallel to the Suez to compete. I, I think all of those things are of enormous importance. Um, and if you want to delve deeper into it, Spud Hut, I think Matt Ehret, on canadianpatriot.org does some excellent work talking about that. You could look up his stuff from the last two weeks. He's got maps and everything of uh, lines of communication they're developing. And, and all roads lead back to resources anyway, right? It's all about yeah. resources and money and yep. in every conflict. And and I would agree with that. I'm glad you, I'm glad you said that. Um, you know, the other, the piece that most people don't pay attention to was when we went into Iraq, it was all about controlling the oil supply and creating um, 
creating conflict in the Middle East, but disrupting the entire region. Because if the entire region is in chaos, then you can control the resources a lot better than if you're dealing with a government like the French are dealing with right now uh, related to their uranium production. You know, they losing Niger is a, is a huge loss for them because they were able to control the price of everything. And when you control the, the region, you control the price, you control the extraction, you control the mineral costs. And there's a lot of there's a lot of costs to it. So it would make a hell of a lot of sense that there would be some kind of a, you know, deposit of something underneath Gaza that they want to get access to. Well, the other factor we haven't we've discussed geography and resources, but we haven't discussed time because the one thing that is is driving this ship is the American election pending. And as you and I have agreed, there's going to be some major obstacles thrown up to help prevent that. We don't actually know whether it's going to be stopped or not. And the one thing those people cannot afford to have happen is have Donald Trump coming back in because we saw in his first in his first administration he had achieved tremendous tremendous gains in the Middle East. I mean, he went in and shut down ISIS within six months. Um, he showed the backbone to dump, you know, uh, air-delivered munitions on Russian soldiers um, right out of the gate when they challenged us. We killed over 200 Russian soldiers in Syria who were attacking an American special forces base. And so his the alliance and, and relationships he was building with the Saudis and the Royal Saud family, uh, those leaders, um, were doing great. And of course, the accords that he was establishing at the end of his administration were making great strides. And of course, now we're trying to see, we're seeing people trying to unravel all of that. We saw how effective he was, you know, the last two years of his administration, there were no American casualties or uh, no American deaths, I should say, in Afghanistan. So, you know, they're trying to spin this up and generate as much disruption, like you're talking about, Steve, as quickly as possible in in this coming year, just on the outside chance that somehow Trump does get forced into office um, because they want to get as much, they want to undermine him and, and shape the battlefield as effectively as possible with as much chaos as possible in the Middle East. And like you said, this is what's going on with Israel is is just a time delayed uh, round two for nine eleven. Did you yeah. see that pundit today straight up say that the Democrats need to put a bullet in Trump if uh, if this lawfare doesn't work? He straight up threatened him, and I and I I wouldn't put it past him, but it's they just openly don't care. Well, again, this goes back. This is part of the reason why I wanted to talk about the the Musk interview is the fact that the mind virus that was spread um, the you know the liberalism in and of itself is a virus and now it's a cancer and it's a cancer because they were they were able to successfully use social media to plant the cancer in the society and it's it's a highly effective influencing operation i mean look at the rhetoric you hear just from the left and, and the, the rhetoric that was unchecked on twitter for how many years five six years while troop was in office the the entire program 
was set up to to have this very effect. And what you're seeing is that you're seeing people that believe, firmly believe, that the ends justifies the mean. I mean, Sam Freeman and a few others have literally gone on TV and fucking said, we cheated in the election and the ends justified the means because we had to get Trump out of office. That's fucking treason. But these people firmly believe that the end justifies the means. And that's exactly why we're in this position, because you have a group of crime families in D.C. that had access to very sophisticated technology to influence the population. And now look at the FBI. Look at the CIA. They're fucking protection rackets. How else did you expect this to, to turn out? Did you think that these, you know, these these staunch liberals that were in the in the press? I mean, they've been doing this since 2001. The media basically rolled over when 9-11 happened and handed the entire control of the entire media apparatus to fucking DOD. And for how many years in Iraq were we getting these softball questions when they should have been, where the fuck are the weapons of mass destruction? They should have been grilling Bush right in front of the entire, the, you know, the world stage saying, okay, where's the weapons of mass destruction? You told us they were here. Where are they? We're 3,000 U.S. soldiers and counting, 60,000 Iraqis, and we still don't have any results. Where the fuck are they? But instead, what did we see? We saw the entire media establishment roll over for the simple fact that they were a controlled asset. And now we're seeing the downstream effects of people that legitimately are believers in the system. These people are fucking communists, and they believe that a communist system is way better than what we've had before. That is a fucking cancer that needs to be cut out with a dull butter knife. But that's only going to happen if the system is so far off the rails that the American public has to step in. And thus far, the American public hasn't done it. So we have a bigger problem on our hands. We have a part of the country especially the part of the country that controls the technology that we use are influencing five generations right now. And they're completely unchecked. That to me is a bigger problem than the messaging. Well, I've got a question. I saw something on Twitter, excuse me, X earlier today for just a moment where there was a, a panel van or a large truck that had, um, ammunition and weapons in the back end there was a police officer walking over in uniform uh, facilitating get, getting stuff out as it was being unloaded and it stated that that the stuff was intended for security forces and someone posed the question do they mean like blue helmeted un security forces I'm just curious if anybody else saw that on Twitter, because I thought that was a rather, I should have copied the, the, uh, I saw that, link. um, Colonel and I, there wasn't enough context in there for me to, I, I was curious where it was, where was well, that? Yeah. It looked like some kind of back East police department. And I mean, for all we know, that was just a, a refresh of, of police, uh, you know, handguns and ammunition. So I, there wasn't enough there. When I, when I see that stuff, and plus that civilian was able to walk right up to the back of the truck that's full of weapons and stick their camera right on the, um, you know, right on the shipping package in the back of the truck. I, 
I, I didn't, I, there wasn't enough there for, for to trigger my curiosity j just because it, it's anti-contextual. Yeah, well, I thought it was interesting. But where, uh, where did you see that, Dave? Sorry, I, I saw that on Twitter, and I was just curious where in the country that took place. I was surprised because when they zeroed in on, unless I misread it, I thought they were zeroing in on a box that, that listed a Beretta carbine. And I thought, that's a very peculiar weapon. It's, it's in my opinion, it's, it's would not be my first choice for any kind of, uh, you know, major league action. And I, I thought this is just, just the whole package was very, very strange. Well, there's a, that, the strange part of it is that the, the messaging they've flooded the system with is all over the place. So you're seeing all kinds of stories that are getting traction that should have never gotten traction in the first place. And I've seen, I've seen so many, I've had so many videos sent to me of atrocities. Um, some from Telegram, some from Instagram, some from uh, Facebook. And the, at the, you have to take a step back from a, a lot of this stuff that's coming across the wire right now and say, could this have been filmed years ago? And half this shit has been filmed in Lebanon or other countries. Like somebody was saying, these are the Israelis that are abusing Palestinian prisoners or uh, Hamas prisoners. These were guys carrying AK-47s wearing all forms of uniforms. These guys were not Israeli, you know, Israeli regular soldiers. The, their uniforms very distinctive. So, but are you talking about? Or I don't mean to interrupt, but are you talking about the video of the Israeli, the so-called Israeli, taking the uh, flexi cuff guy with his arms behind his back and, and tossing him in the in the would be in the pit, mass sure. grave? That's in the just pit. one of them. There's like 15 of those videos <laughs> floating around right now. I question if that was staged because I, I just I'm looking at those people and thinking, wouldn't you be like moving and trying to get out of there? Would you really be cooperating like that? Well, you know. If you got a gun to your head, you're, there's not a hell of a lot you can do, right? So, but I, that that part of the video, I don't, I'm not even paying attention. I'm just paying attention to the fact that so many people are buying into this messaging that it, it, you have to spend more time unwinding it than somebody just doing a 10 minute cursory, you know, review of it to go, this isn't real. And uh, just a cursory review would show that it's not real. So. You know that it's those that kind of thinking that's that's missing right now from across the the spectrum, and when you see so many video after video after video after fucking video of atrocities, there's only so much you you can watch. Now the video I saw today that I think is signal is a video of a bunch of um, uh, Israeli tanks burning because you know that Hamas has anti tank weapons. You know they have. They have standoff anti-tank weapons, and they may have hit the defensive belt and, you know, started taking casualties. Because I, I did get a call this morning from somebody uh, that's still in the system that said they are they are taking a lot of casualties right now, which is what I said from the onset, that you don't just send fucking reservists into an urban environment and expect them to be su successful, especially when it's a channelized urban environment. That's just a that's just a meat grinder. There was a there was a report that those the Israeli tanks you're talking about were engaged uh, to either yesterday or the day before on the Russian channels. I didn't share it because I couldn't I couldn't corroborate it, but that was reported yesterday yeah, I, or the day before. I've heard that the drones have had effect. I've heard that the um, 
anti-tank weapons have had effect. I've heard that they've got um, staged mines that they've they've laid in certain areas, and I've I've also heard that they've got uh, RPGs are highly effective that the uh, the Israelis weren't anticipating, and you know that's urban warfare, right? You get in a channelized situation, and you, your tanks. You know, people think that tanks are impervious to damage, and it's just <laughs> not true, because you know you have limited visibility in a tank, especially when you look at through the cupola, right? Because you only got a very small field of vision, and even the M1A2 and the A3 that have optics that allow you to see 360, you still you still miss a lot, no matter what you're doing, because you get target focused, you get you get fixated on targets in front of you or targets to one either side. You lose the peripherals really quick. It's called target fixation. It really happens, especially when the crew's actively engaging, engaging other tanks or anti-tank weapons. You know, you can get saturated very, very quickly. And um, people forget that, just like they forget that. Uh, by the way, if there's a bunch of noise, I have two dogs right outside my window, and I have F-22s flying over my head. So people get bogged down thinking the tanks are impervious. They're not. If 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 anything, um, if anything, tanks are more more um, they're more susceptible now in urban areas. My you last, know, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Troop. Sorry about that. The, uh, when I was I was in the cab on the A1, A2, we had this German guy at Fort Bliss that came to talk to us. He was he was a World War II guy and he was on the advisory board for the development of the turret for Rockwell or whoever developed it. And they ignored his input, but he, he, they brought this guy to the regiment to talk to us on how to protect our tank. And he was talking from the perspective of exactly what's happening in Israel right now. And he said, so the back of your tank, the turret, it hangs over. Why does it hang over? It was like, well, those are the, you know, it's where we put the ammo and stuff. He said, okay. And so, what if it gets hit? Well, the tank's designed to have the, the blow-off doors on top, right? The, the cheap bolts on top. So if, if it gets hit, the, the ammo blows, the doors come out. And he says, okay, so how thick is the metal on those ammo doors? And, oh, we don't know. It's so so thick. We'll say it's three-quarters of an inch thick, mild steel. And he says, and how thick is the steel on the bottom of the turret where it hangs over the back deck underneath the ammo? Well, it's a lot thinner than that, right? And then here's, here's a real question. How thick is your loading door? So in, a, in an M1 tank or any any M1 series tank, the loader basically hits a knee switch and ammo door opens and then they grab ammo essentially out of the back of the turret and then they, they cram it in the breech. Well, the steel underneath the back of the turret is thinner than the top uh, blowout doors and the ammo door is thinner than the bottom. So if you throw a satchel charge on the back deck of an M1, and you blow a hole through and you ignite all of those cardboard, the new 120 millimeter rounds, they're, they're, they're not brass. They have an aft cap, but they're mainly a, um, what, what do you guys call it? Like an, an incendiary type of case. So you don't get a big brass uh, case that comes out of the breach. That whole ammo column is going to blow. And before the ammo doors blow out of the top of the, the, the vents on the top of the turret, your ammo door that you're you're operating to open and close to get the ammo that's going to blow and just incinerate everybody in the tank. So it's like the and so his point was one guy with a satchel charge 
can take out your your big ass tank. Your tank's a range weapon. It's designed for open open warfare, kind of like the blue sea thing that we were talking about uh, with our navy. The tank is designed to be in a, a long range engagement. You put that thing in a city, you're fucked because it has too many too many weaknesses and vulnerabilities. For as you said, when you get target focused, you get tunnel vision. You're not going to see some guy come up and throw a satchel charge on your back deck. You're dead. You're dead. You're just you're not going to see it, especially if you have to buckle up. Well, I'd like to jump in if I could for just a second. Um, my last assignment actually was in this very area of, of, uh, forensics investigation into tank destruction and, uh, anti-tank guided missile engagements and things of that sort. And I think it's very interesting that a German, uh, or were you saying he was a former World War II German soldier? Yeah. <laughs> that, that is interesting and ironic. Most people don't know this, but the shirts and plates that they put on uh, like Panzer Mark IVs uh, actually enhanced the effect of American bazookas because it it created a certain standoff detonation range. So the plasma cone forming, the copper cone forming, uh, was more effective than if it just hit the bare armor. But anyhow, uh, troop, I, I was an M1 tanker, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the key event here is does the load, like when the loader happens to hit his knee pad and open up those doors as long as those doors are shut most of the detonations that i've witnessed um the compilation of videos i've seen things like that the the blow off panels on top of the turret worked fairly well and and while yes it was you know goodbye ammunition goodbye back of the turret the crew inside survived and and that was the main purpose and you're telling me that the armor underneath the turret is even less than the blow-off panels. Is is that what you're saying? Yeah, it's essentially soft metal. There's no there's no depleted uranium. There's no plating. No, no it, 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 most people don't know. I mean, if you sit, not to get into classified stuff, but if you sit on the back of an M1 turret, you kick your heel against the turret. It it rings hollow like a bell, because it's it's designed to be, you know, less resistant, so that you know what's what's in on on the uh in the back wall of the turret in the crew compartment is stronger and more resistant so the blast is defected away from the crew right um the one thing i wanted to comment on about tank tactics in urban warfare is this combined arms is what it's all about I was a mech infantry com a company commander. I was a tank platoon leader. I was an anti. I was an anti-tank platoon leader. I was a um, armored scout as well. Uh, you know, a scout platoon leader. And I, I won't hold that against you. It all comes. Nor, nor will I hold against you being the, being the toe bitch. It, it all. What it all comes down to <laughs> is is a proper coordination with these different elements covering themselves, covering each other, I should say. It's, it's, you have to be ready to hose somebody, you know, you, you take your, your coax machine gun, hose off the back of the turret or whatever you need to of anyone approaching uh, your wingman's tank. Um, you're never gonna have 100% protection, but you should have a pretty good envelope with, with different elements within your team looking out for one another to include, you know, infantry that you're working with. Well, you want infantry with you when you move into the city, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And the whole point of it was and hunter killer hunter killer tactics are very effective when absolutely. you've got infantry scouting and and vectoring people in. 
uh, per American tank destroyer doctrine in World War II. Well, the the point I was trying to make was, and, and you just made it for me, was that, you know, there, the tanks not impervious to damage in urban areas make it no. harder to protect armor than than you know wide open spaces where you've got you know standoff capability, right? Which is what they're really designed for anyway. And I, I think, and I think where we started going with this, I want to make sure we get back on track. Is I think a lot of uh, what we're going to see over the next several weeks, and Friday is going to be the tell on what the rest of the Arab world does. I'm hoping Friday that Hezbollah and the Iranians show a tremendous amount of restraint because that will throw off the plans of both uh, the you know the globalists that are pushing for a wider war, but it'll also throw off um, what's going on on the ground in Gaza and keep the focus there. Because what happens when they start their their offensive is all the focus goes to the new offensive and they forget about Gaza, just like they forgot about Ukraine. And I think keeping that in the public space, keeping that at the forefront of the public consciousness, by far will do more damage to both the, our government as well as the Israeli government than than any invasion from Lebanon. Now, that That to me is where the signal is in all of this. Did you guys see we bolo'd our uh, ICBM test launch today? I didn't know we did a foot launch today. Yeah, we did. And, and uh, Colonel Conrad, the uh, OSINT team was tracking a lot of unusual movements of military brass and politicians over the last few days. They were trying to figure out why they were shuffling everybody around because there wasn't anything on the news. And so today the uh, ICBM launch occurred and apparently they had to terminate it mid-flight. There were some anomalies in the flight path too that are being speculated on what, what they were, but I just I thought it was kind of interesting that we had a, a bolo'd ICBM launch in the middle of a saber-rattling contest. That's very unusual for, uh, for especially a, it was a Minuteman 3 out of Andy. Uh, it was a Minuteman 3 and I don't know where they launched it from. Had to be out of Vandy. If it came out of Vandy, the likelihood of any kind of a flight path deviation is a very, very small window. So it was either the guidance set was either jammed or, I mean, we're talking we're talking about plated wire memory on this on these ICBMs. This is old shit, and the guidance set on that they have they have they so they do three calibrations on the missile. There's FICAL, there's SACAL. And I think there's uh, what's that? It's got to be locale. No, FICAL, SACAL. So one of them tells the missile where it's at. One of them tells the missile where it's going, and then one of them tells the missile how it's going to get there. I should I I should be able to rattle this off the top of my head. Anyway, if one of those calibrations is off, they don't launch the missile. And when they put the missile in the hole and they put the guidance set on it and they put the the uh, the warhead on it. It's a dummy warhead, but they still go through the calibration process and it takes several hours to do it. They wouldn't have turned keys on that thing if there was any faults in that missile. So something had to mess with that guidance set once it took off. I've I've done probably, I don't know, two foot launches and I've never seen one go off axis. The Miniman 3 and the Miniman 2 were the most, the most reliable missiles we ever built. 
bar none. Still today, the most reliable missiles. Well, we're building new ones and uh, re-entry vehicles. The Chinese are way ahead of us, actually, on the modernization of their their, their missile fleet. I don't really follow that too much because I figure if the missiles are inbound, I'm going to go get a cigar, a bottle of scotch, bang my wife on the front yard. And, uh, you ain't gonna have that. You ain't you. You're gonna get to light this, light the smoke, and the bombs will be on the ground. You won't get any warning. I'll bang my wife first, then. All right, you should. Uh, yeah. Keep that kind of shit to yourself. Just saying. But you, you get my, you get my point, right? Is that for that to happen, it means there's something else going on. Uh, but that wouldn't explain VIP movements, and they wouldn't advertise it anyway. They they would move VIPs. Uh, and for a contingency operation or some kind of contingency they're expecting or a change in DEFCON. And if yeah, well, there was a change in DEFCON uh, this week, too. So they went from uh, Bravo to Charlie, a bunch of military bases. That's a threat con. That's not a DEFCON. DEFCON okay. is either DEFCON. We're normally at DEFCON 4. If we move to DEFCON 3, then they'll move VIPs. If we go to DEFCON 2, that means the holes are buttoned up, the LCCs are buttoned up, and we flush bombers in the air. And the, we do have stuff on alert. So I don't think we're DEFCON 2. We might be a DEFCON 3. I mean, it's it's hard to say, given the situation, what what that would look like. But that would explain the movement of, of VIPs around. And I don't bother speculating on that stuff anyway, because it, there's a variety of reasons why we move people around the country. Do we um, know who the VIPs were? That's a good question. I don't. I don't. No. Sent, uh, sent and... Uh... Was tracking, you know, what what is it? No, um, what do they call those spar numbers? I'm not, I'm not hip on all that aircraft tracking stuff, but they couldn't identify who it was, but they identified where they were going, where they came from. A lot of them went to uh, Colorado, and there was a lot of flights that were coming out of some military base in Florida, going to uh, Virginia. So it was Florida to Virginia, and then DC to Virginia, and then Virginia to Colorado. And there was well, a that bunch could be. Of, uh, that could be CENTCOM to up to the Pentagon and then from the Pentagon out to Shan Mountain. It could be any any number of things going on. And it just could be a normal normal movement for a conference, who knows. So anyway, I'll tell you one, tell you um, one thing. There's I'm a seeing, variety of reasons for that. One thing I'm seeing is is a real uptick in the number of people talking about uh, violation of our southern border and the number of immigrants getting pushed in here and the nature of those i'm seeing more and more uh alternate media as well as conventional media talking about about that stuff i think there are some people starting to wake up in that uh in that realm what are your thoughts on that because we've been talking about that for two years and very articulately detailing what the potential consequences of that are. And now all of a sudden the, the mainstream media is starting to pick it up. I mean, what, why are they, they must've known the same things that we did two years ago. Why are they, what, what, what are they setting us up for? Well, they're changing the narrative right now so they can set us up for some kind of a, you know, terrorist attack on CONUS. And the rhetoric started last week with Chris Ray talking about there's there's Islamic terrorists in the country now. No shit, because you've been focused on domestic terrorists and you've devoted all your assets to going after people for January 6th and you've allowed them to come into our country. So now you have the perfect storm 
for some kind of, uh, you know, Islamic terrorist attack somewhere in the U.S. That's what they're setting us up for. Remember, they do all the messaging around all the different warnings to tell you we don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know who, but we know someone somewhere will do something in the U.S. That's exactly what they're doing right now. Did you this see that meme that, that hit the channel today? It was uh, it was like a MAGA hat guy. And I said, you know that the the ultra-right MAGAs are not a real terrorist threat in the United States because if they were, the CIA would have given us weapons and money by now. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I was like, absolutely. So, but you, that's what they're setting us up for. And, uh, you know, what the timing is, how far away it is, it, it could be any day now. Who knows? But for Chris Ray to sit there, and, and I find it so ironic that Chris Ray sits there with a fucking smile on his face while he's saying it. I mean, he can't even hold, they can't even hold a straight face anymore when they're lying to the American public. None of them can. It's a, it's such a joke. The worst was the UFO briefings at, uh, in the, in Congress. They couldn't even hold a straight face. It's like, they're not even trying anymore. I at least like, like my BS freshly packaged and well delivered. It's not even well delivered anymore. It's getting frustrating. Did um, you talk did you talk AI yet, Steve? I have not. I was just getting ready to make the transition. I was I was uh I was kind of enthralled in the Elon he he made this really important comment. I think it was him. Said that you know when we were doing sea voyage, the ship's great, the men are strong, there's plenty of food, everything's great. All we forgot was vitamin C. And, you know, he's talking about colonizing Mars and stuff like that. But we know we're going to need AI to do it. And, you know, the more I think about this AI, it's the the WEF population reduction thing, kill everybody on the planet, right? And all the people that are that are WEFites are the ones that are the engineers developing the, the AI software logic. So if AI is programmed around conservation, and conservation means population reduction, then what does that mean if these AI systems are, are navigating us to, you know, the nether regions of outer space, right? So it's it's kind of a how we measure morality in, in breathing sentient beings. If, you know, if you're in a, if you're shooting somebody, morality is measured by sear springs and trigger pool, right? So well, if he, he was still, did you catch his comments about AI safety and how, whoever programs the AI will determine how the AI interacts with humans. And if the, if the, if the uh, global extinction crowd, which is predominantly tech based, if that crowd programs the AI or worse, the Berkeley environmentalist crowd that's gone over the edge programs the AI, then the AI starts, starts to make decisions that kills off humanity. And that was that to me was the most salient point of the whole thing, because I I talked about putting you know after the AI conference I went to, um, sitting listening to CEOs talk about they don't know what AI is in their environment, but more importantly, they don't know how that AI is being taught, and that without guardrails, the healthcare system can be sent in twenty different directions that are detrimental for humanity because of the AI learning and must talk right to that. I got to give the guy credit. I, you know, he, he talked to a problem that I, I've been tracking for over two years and no one's talking about. 
And that is what is the most ethical approach to training AI? Because you have to teach it, right? It's not just turn it on and, and it figures stuff out. You have to teach it a certain way so it learns the right way. And having that ethical conversation about how do we train AI? How do we, how do we propagate AI? What do we want AI ultimately to be um, a force multiplier for? And how do we want it to interact with humans? Because nobody's having that discussion right now. And that is massively fucking dangerous to society if you're going to trust AI to do healthcare. I mean, think about it. You, you want, there's certain drugs that if you don't get the exact dosage right, you could kill somebody with it. And, you know, training AI to do the right thing is, is it's got to be a methodical approach to how you do it. And, you know, programming is one thing. Programming is just basically you're a clerk typist with syntax, but training AI, it's, it's the whole spectrum. It's, it's the inflection. It's the, the type of question you ask. It's how you ask the question. It's what results that you get back. It's what your response is to that result set. All of those things have to be considered and no one's talking about it. So I'm glad he at least talked about that. So, you know, and the other part of it too is is that, and this is the part I don't agree with, is that we should we should be expanding how we develop AI. And I'm and I'm thinking the fuck we should. We should be we should be limiting what we do with AI until we can demonstrate that it can be taught and it can operate for the good of humanity. And none of that conversation is going on right now either. So the, the homework assignment is for everyone to go out and pull up. 2001 a space odyssey and watch the interaction between dave bowman frank pool and uh hal 9000 because that was the whole that was the whole point of the movie was you know the evolution of things with ai and humans and how the ai was focused on mission completion not necessarily you know human preservation that was that was where it wanted to drive into the event horizon of that black hole, right? That came out when I was a teenager. It's an awesome movie. The the other movie I think people should watch too is there's uh, I was watching the Green Berets this weekend, and I one of the things I like about that movie is that um, there's a reporter at the start of it that's you know as liberal and and very David Jansen. David Jansen, thank you, and. By the end of the movie, after seeing some of the atrocities that the Viet Cong did to, to their own people, his view of the world was drastically different. And we're seeing that have, that occur right now with a lot of liberals across our country. They're, they're disillusioned at what they're seeing in the city streets. They're disillusioned at what they're seeing in the political spectrum. And they're all starting to come back towards center because they realize that they've got, you know, most of them have gone off the reservation. And, you know, that to me, you know, we're at this inflection point. And this inflection point is, to me, is going to drive us in a in a in a positive direction, not in a negative direction. Because, as much as the the powers that be in the middle management of the globalists want to drive us towards a wider war, the world is really fatigued with it. And I, you know, get away from the Chinese. I think something's going to disrupt the Chinese plans too. And I think all of that is going to come to a culmination point before 2030. And we may see. We may see AI as a driver to do that. If AI goes rogue and it becomes sentient, we are fucked. 
and people don't realize how much power you give it you give an ai autonomous power supposedly there's an ai that's in saudi arabia called sophia that has an autonomous plant that is manufacturing something and if that's true then we already have the makings of the perfect storm with ai not the terminator moment but other problems that come out of that and maybe that's the catalyst that drives the you know drives the planet into away from war and towards another outcome but either way you know all these these different uh, moral and ethical conversations have to happen and given our current political environment especially our current cultural political environment it's going to be very hard for that conversation to occur unless somebody is is focused on it and you know again i know some of you're going to be stunned when i say this but i'm glad that elon musk brought it up it, get away from my feelings around the guy you know, that comment and the things he said on Joe Rogan have to be said. And it, he's the only guy saying it right now. And I am i was refreshed to actually hear it. And all of that um, dialogue that happened between he and Joe Rogan, I mean, there was other salient parts of that conversation. And one of those was they were talking about the, the, the truck that he's making, right? Bulletproof truck. And he's like, why aren't cars bulletproof? why aren't they why aren't they hardened vehicles and he said manufacturing is complex he said it like 15 times i can't emphasize enough how complex manufacturing is and what a salient point because he's he's basically outing the car industry for creating cars that are not hardened against any kind of an accident or any kind of a projectile Again, it's it's something most people probably didn't even pick up on, but he said a number of different things that were like, holy shit, he said it outright. Like he said, the fucking intelligence agencies control all of social media. Full stop, all social media. When's the last time you heard an oligarch say those words out loud, let alone somebody that owns a social media company? And then he said, the car companies have strayed away from supporting the public because they're so interdependent that if you bring one down, you bring them all down and you can't bring them down because of the fact that they will bring everything down and everything goes to full stop. And I was like, this guy gets it. They're so interdependent because of all the bailouts and everything else. We have a bit, we have a bigger problem brewing in the background. And again, that's where he called out the control grid from Washington DC. That's influenced all of our manufacturing to the point where now, if you turn one off, all of it collapses. He talked about strategic oil reserve. And there was a whole host of things he said that people probably didn't even catch. And I was like, damn, called out the CIA. Hua. I had a conversation with Colonel Piper about two months ago on the, on the AI question. And he knows way more about computer status, computer development than, than anybody that I know. And uh, he thinks we're, we're actually a, a fair distance away from, uh, or much further than what's being portrayed in the media, uh, away from, from reaching that point of true autonomy. He's, he said, we're, we're still pretty much at a garbage in, garbage out this, you know, status. I would, I, I would agree with that, but I, I think the garbage going in and the garbage coming out eventually will will be detrimental without guardrails yeah by the way everybody's asking where colonel pipe colonel piper is that dude works a lot he works a lot 
All right. Any any final topics we want to talk through before we wrap this up? Because we're at an hour and a half, and I don't want to keep everybody two hours. Any any great questions anybody's uh, got coming up with? No, but I'm reading OGW's comment. Redneck asshole for a hundred thousand <laughs> for a hundred. Oh. <laughs> That's funny. No, it's actually for a So, Steve, what, what's Steve? What's your assessment? Because that's one of the big questions: Is Elon Musk the next Bill Gates, or, or uh, you know, Facebook developer, or you know, is he, is he, you know, the evil guy behind the screen, or is he actually a somewhat cool guy who understands both sides of the street? Oh, that motherfucker's a sociopath. Uh, there, there's no doubt in my mind he's a sociopath. You go listen to him, no emotion whatsoever. There is no emotion in anything he says. And, you know, he's a he's an incredibly smart guy. And I go back, this is what I go back to, that this guy owns the biggest satellite company. He owns one of the biggest electric car companies in the world. He has access to a lot of DOD assets and he has DOD contracts. And he's also heavily funded by China. So you can do the inference there. I don't trust him any farther than I can throw him. He's not a maniacal schemer like Bill Gates is. But that doesn't mean he's not just as maniacal and just as um, just as untrustworthy. He's just more polished. And he figured out early on how to do the social media game to benefit his PR and his his persona. But do I think that he has got the greater good in mind? I think the jury's still out on that. And I think that the tell is going to be that what comes out of the AI piece of this as well as the uh, the chip piece of this. Because remember, we're talking about a guy who is all about having chips implanted and computer interfaces in your mind. And he hasn't deviated away from that just because he's talking about social media and he's talking about the social con contract as well as the, the mind virus that is liberalism. The only reason he's talking about that is because it's directly affected him. And again, oligarchs are all about what they're what they're about. Like if you look at Steve Ballmer, Steve Ballmer was a very interesting dude. He was really into music. He was really into World War II history. He started the, uh, the uh, aviation museum at Payne Field and bought a bunch of very, very rare aircraft. Um, and he put a bunch of money into the ME-262 project, which was also at Payne Field where they were rebuilding ME-262s. The, the guy was in a lot of different things, but he pre predominantly stayed out of the public space. But anywhere he went, he would send a team of people to go measure the steps for all the places he was gonna visit that day so he could find the shortest routes. That that is the quintessential oligarch right there. Like he was so focused on, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to take any more steps than he had to. He didn't want to waste any more time than he had to. So he had people doing that. Elon Musk is no different. He, everything he does is carefully architected or choreographed so that he has the best public persona. But do I trust him? No fucking way I don't trust him. You know, another interesting thing about that, Steve, is his uh, girlfriend broke up with him because he he basically lives the life of a bopper. I mean, he's a super mega rich dude, but he wear a set of dirty jeans from yesterday. He's not he's not really a materialistic guy. It's kind of interesting. 
No. And I, but again, it all boils for, for me, it boils down to motive. What's his motive. If he's really trying to do the, put his best foot forward and help humanity, then why the fuck didn't he out the CIA the moment he got to Twitter? He outed the FBI, but he didn't out the fucking CIA. I have a fucking problem with that because the CIA is the problem. They've been funded and they're controlled by very, very rich institutional money. And if he's really, you know, sticking it to the man, that he should have called that out on day one. But it took him several months. And he still hasn't unbanned a lot of people. And then what did he do when he handed over the reins? He put a liberal dipshit in charge of Twitter. Now X or whatever the fuck he wants to call it. So all of those things don't bode well. And no PR person in the world is going to convince me that he's a savior. I definitely am not going to look at him like that. But until he he makes several steps that show me that he's got the, the, the good of greater humanity in mind, he's not getting the benefit of the doubt from me, mainly because of his deep connections to China. You know, I don't want to go too far down this this rabbit hole, but I did see an interesting thing. Uh, and talking about Elon Musk reminded me of this. Ford and their electric car division is losing $62,000 on every electric vehicle that they that they make and sell 62k per vehicle lost is that going to make people in that industry stand up and take notice and and modify their approach to this whole advanced technology thing no it's being pushed by policy not good consumer uh you know, evolution of products. All of the motors and the the control systems, the emission systems on cars are the, the best that they've ever been. And I mean, what's the environmental footprint of of the of one car with a six cylinder engine driving one hundred and fifty thousand miles before it goes to the junkyard, versus one electric vehicle going Chernobyl on the side of the road that you can't put out with normal fire department equipment? I'm just wondering. What's the impact on the environment? And, well, and V, you're right. There's 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 no saviors. Thanks for saying that, V. Sorry. Go ahead, Dave. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, I think we've all read the stories about all of the effort it takes to mine the lithium and, and all of the natural resources to, to build the batteries. And it, it's a complete loser in terms of, energy efficiency and uh, renewable uh, resources and things like that. It's a sham. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering how long it's going to take people to realize, wake up and realize uh, what a scam all of that is. Yeah, I agree. Go ahead, you've got meltdowns and things with these. And, well, you know, hey, um, how far, how long have we been hearing about cars that drive themselves and, you know, where's all of that, where's all of that going and how far is that? Well, the, the environmental thing is total bullshit because in Arizona, for example, if you want to put solar panels on the roof of your house and sell back the electricity that you don't use or whatever, if the power goes out in your neighborhood, the power goes out in your home, even though you have battery and solar 
and you don't need the power company, your power still goes out. And they say well, it was for downstream line safety for linemen. It was bullshit because you could put a disconnector on it. You also have to pay the utility company, I think it's like 50 bucks a month, just to have those panels on your roof. So you bought the panels or you're leasing them, you're on the hook for the liability. A lot of people fell into the scam where they get a second um, a lien on their house to over 30 years to pay off the solar investment. And that's net zero value at 15 or 20 years. So they're getting nothing in return. And they have to pay for the privilege of having it on their own roof. If they really were serious about energy savings, the solar panels are very efficient. Batteries are very efficient for, for that type of uh, you know power storage for, for a home. And the inverter capabilities are very efficient. If they were just to subsidize, hey, if you want to spend 10 grand putting panels and batteries on your house, we'll cover it. You have to put a disconnector on your house. So if you're running off of solar, those have to be on isolated circuits for line safety. Everybody go out and do it. We would immediately significantly reduce the, the requirement for all of the power plants, like even the coal burning ones, whatever, they, a goal that they wanted to accomplish, they could accomplish. Yet they don't do it that way. It's not about that. Because exactly. I have solar on my house and it's just a credit and I don't have storage. And I've gone out there and flipped the breaker to see if, if the solar is going to run the house and doesn't. No, it won't. And but, but it's, a, it's the same, well, it's the same thing that what was it for that bought up all of the trolleys in San Francisco and Detroit, wherever they were, just junked them. They wanted people to drive their cars. They already had a really efficient, uh, you know, transportation system in these big cities. And the automakers went, well, we're not going to sell any cars. And people are jumping on a trolley. Let's buy all the trolley companies and put them out of business and people will buy cars. Oh, that's what they're doing with the ammo companies right now. And that's because Ford was a dick. But, you know, that's just part of the deal that's just that's how that's how the capitalist system works i mean you didn't think a rockefeller was any different he used to buy put gas stations right across the street from his competitor and charge you know 10 cents cheaper for gas and drive all those competitors out of business where that's where all the the uh you know anti uh monopolistic rules came from and laws but you know we don't enforce them anymore so that's how you know, guys like Musk can put up the biggest satellite constellation in space. I mean, if there was real competition in space, there'd be multiple people that were putting satellites up. Instead, it's just pretty much Musk and uh, the, the Blue Orifice, which is Jeff Bezos. So anyway. I almost went to work for him on that program. It was about three years ago they, they interviewed me, and I didn't want to move to Washington. And they were like, well, you know, too bad then. You know, I went through that process too, and I got to like step three, and I was like, "Yeah, yeah I'm not, I'm not interested in this." So I was just curious to see how far it would go. Well, be be grateful that uh, he's not uh, Elon Musk. Isn't like a what is it, Peter Peter Stars, whatever that uh, that guy Iron Man movie, the the weapon builder guy. Be uh, be grateful that he isn't he isn't into that shit. I could just imagine the type of weapon systems that Elon could come up with or his team. Well, that's what I'm worried about, right? So. Okay. Any other, any final comments for, for the group? We've, we, we always go tangerial. That's what's so amazing about these <laughs> panel discussions. All right. No comments from the group. I'm going to, I'm going to call it, call it a night. I, I, first of all, thanks everyone for all of the, uh, the comments on the chat chats blew up tonight. I appreciate that. Appreciate everybody hanging out for a few minutes. Till we yeah, got one more thing, Colonel. Sure. Go ahead. Uh, I wanted to first. I wanted to thank everybody who's contributed to the uh, the medical outreach thing uh, that we're doing, and I wanted to thank everybody that showed up to Range Day and met the Colonel and I. Uh, we met some some folks that we hadn't met before, and the 
point of that exercise was to get everybody out in the world, out of the, the safe side of their keyboard and out, you know, out in the world meeting people. So thanks for everybody that participated in that. When we do them in the future, uh, we'll look forward to seeing uh, new people. Thanks, Colonel. Yeah, the human connection part of that was the whole point of it anyway. And, um, you know, to reiterate something to, to go along with that, most of the time we're, our activities are centered on one thing and one thing only, and that's preparedness, preparing people for the absolute worst scenarios. Whether those scenarios happen or not, I don't care. I care about getting people ready, awake, and, and prepared for the absolute worst. Because the one thing, like I said on Monday, that, that I heard overwhelmingly was I'm afraid for my family and I want to be able to protect my family. I heard that all day long. And that should be your focus. That should, that's the point of us doing this. It's the point of us continuing these, these panel discussions every week is to have thoughtful conversations that lead to other conversations, but more importantly, can lead to other conversations in your sphere of influence and line increasing your line of sight. That's the point of it. Making the human connections on Saturday was, was good. And um, I can tell you that there's, <coughs> there's more to come, but you're going to see some crazy stuff over the next couple of months. And if you're prepared, you're going to be, you're going to, you, one, you're going to have your A game on Two, you're going to, you're going to have your mind at ease. So that's the point of this. We're not doing this to build militias. We're not doing this to kick doors. All that's that, that stupidity will, will resolve itself quickly. The first and foremost thing that we need to remind everybody of is we're all on the same team. We're all trying to save the Republic. Keep that in mind because as, as frustrating as things get, as as scary as things might get, if you step away from the emotions of this, you'll make better decisions. That's why we're doing this. So keep that in mind. And, you know, don't give up the faith. That's all I can say is don't give up the faith. And, you know, there was a, I was telling, I was telling, uh, I think my nephew this the other night, and that, you know, Eisenhower was looking at the supply trains going into, into, uh, Normandy from the beach. They said, there's no way we can lose this war. Patton's like, we can absolutely lose this war. And Ike's like, no way because of that. And he was pointing at the streams of trucks going inland with supplies for our soldiers. And we have one thing that most other cultures on this planet doesn't have ingenuity. We have very creative people and we solve problems very creatively. That will ultimately be something that's in our hip pocket. But we also have something a lot of cultures don't have, and that's empathy. So when things look dark, remember that. We're God's light. God bless everyone. One team, one fight. We'll see you next week on Monday. <laughs>